Fears and concerns over changes in education persist, whether it's our disdain for lecturing to a bunch of disconnected texting and Facebooking students, or their boredom at being put to sleep by a droning professor reading from a PowerPoint. Something's got to give. In today's episode, episode 28, Dr. Kathy Davidson joins us to talk about finding the right practice, the right tools, and being able to see what we've been missing in higher ed. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today on episode 28 of Teaching in Higher Ed, Dr. Kathy Davidson joins us. She's a renowned scholar of cultural history and technology. Her work focuses on trust, data, new collaborative methods of living and learning, and the ways we can change higher education for a better future. She's the co-founder of the Humanities, Arts, Science, and Technology Alliance and Collaboratory otherwise acronymed as Haystack, H-A-S-T-A-C dot org. And I'll be linking to that in the show notes, which will be available at teachinginhighered.com slash 28. And that's a network of more than 13,000 scholars, artists, and technologists who are committed to changing the way we teach and learn. And I have her as a guest on today's show, of course, because of her expertise, but especially because I had the pleasure of reading her book over the summer, called Now You See It, How the Brain Science of Attention Will Transform the Way We Live, Work, and Learn. She has published, in addition to that, more than 20 books, and you can read about those if you go to the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 28. I have a link to her bio. And she, I'm just only skimming the surface here, but I just want to get us right over to her as our guest and all that she has to offer us today. So feel free to check out more about her bio. And one last thing I want to mention about her, which I think is definitely of note, is President Obama appointed her to the National Council on Humanities in 2011. And in 2012, she was named the first educator to serve on the board of directors of Mozilla. Again, there's a lot more to find out about Kathy, but let me just go over and now and welcome Dr. Kathy Davidson to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Let's start with the topic of attention. And I think for those that haven't heard of it yet, hearing about the gorilla experiment would be a great way to begin. Well, this is an experiment that was actually begun a long time ago in the 1970s. And when it was first done, people said this would change our whole view of human nature. Well, it didn't. And one reason was that it was done with a very poor a blurry technology and people just blame technology for what I'm about to describe. But then in 1999, the student of the person who invented the experiment, Ulrich Nieser is the great, uh, one of the founders of cognitive psychology as a field who did this first. Um, one of his students, Dan Simon, and uh, one of his students, um, uh, Shabris, um, reprised this famous experiment and this time used contemporary digital video equipment. And the experiment goes like this: You um, in the audience, you you're in the audience, and you watch six 
people, they happen to be graduate students at Harvard, pass basketballs back and forth. And three of the people passing the basketballs are wearing white shirts and three are black. And you, as a member of the audience, are asked to keep tally of how many times the ball passes only between people wearing the same colored shirts. So we'll say only between people um, wearing black shirts. And it, the video is very short. It's under two minutes. So the video ends, and the tester says, how many times, how many passes were there? And you raise your hand if you counted 12, 13, 14, 15, perfect score. And then the tester says, and who saw the gorilla? And uh, midway through the tape, these six people who are playing in a hallway in front of an elevator, so in a very, cons- very short, small space, Right in between them comes a woman, she's an undergraduate at Harvard, um, <laughs> who's wearing a full gorilla suit, head to toe. She's on camera for nine seconds. That's a long time in camera time. Yes, it is. She pounds her checks, she makes a face, and she walks off. Uh, in normal testing situations, people who haven't heard of the experiment before, and now it's pretty famous, so it's, the results have changed, but people who haven't heard it, over 65% do not see the gorilla. It's staggering. So, um, this is it's kind of amazing. And um, uh, because so many people have seen it, um, Simons and Shepherds have redone it, where they say, hey, you know there's a gorilla coming, and you know there's a basketball counting, but so just let us know, even when you know that, how many times it's counted, it, it, it's changed. And in this version, they changed the whole background color, and people don't notice the background color. So even when you know there's a gorilla, even when you know there's a trick, even when you know there's basketballs, even when you know that you have attention blindness, they can change the background color, and you don't notice it. What are some of the gorillas, or what is the attention blindness, some of it, that you've seen us have in higher ed today? What are we missing? The whole point of attention blindness is the more you concentrate really carefully on a task, the more you miss everything else. And this is a great feature of the human brain because concentration is very, very important. But don't forget you miss everything else. I think one of the things we're doing with our obsession with standardized testing, and higher education is the responsible party. We publicize our test scores. We require high test scores uh, for students going undergraduate and professional schools. You know, we require standardized tests coming in. K-12 through can't change its test obsession until higher education does. But one thing we're doing is we're saying that choosing the best possible answer from four or five available answers is the way of the world. Well, I don't know about you, but if I Google attention blindness, I might get two or three million answers. Forget one out of, out of the four. I live in a world of so much, we all live in a world of so much information that being able to find the right particular answer that some tester wants in a particular situation is the last thing we need. We need to have filters. We need to know what data is. We need to have data literacy. We need to have the ability to take knowledge that's out there and recombine it in creative ways that work for the world we're living in now. We need to not just think critically, but contribute creatively. We need to have students take the lead because we also live in a world now where anyone who has an idea can communicate that idea to anyone else with an internet connection, without a pause button, without an editor. That's an astonishing human capability. It's also an astonishing human challenge. And we're we're still educating people for a system that was designed for the Model T and the assembly line. Mm-hmm. And basically, our higher education system was redesigned between 1865 and 1925 specifically for the era, the last information age, the era of the telegraph, 
and the year of the Model T and the assembly line. And we live in this world with this amazing new capacity and a very old educational system. In your book, Now You See It, you both give a lot of challenge to us as educators, and you also give a lot of inspiration. It's an interesting mix that I took away from reading it. I loved what you had to say about our brains and how they have such an enormous capacity for ever-changing and ever-learning. Would you share some of your research around our brains and, and how it combats some of the myths that are out there? There's so many things. I mean, we're constant. We, first of all, I don't believe that you know Google makes us stupid, that we're distracted, et cetera, et cetera. I like to say distraction is our friend because if we're aware that we're distracted, that means that we're having a kind of metacognition. We're thinking to ourselves, something isn't working well. And as long as we know something isn't working well, we have the capacity to change it. We can change our tools. We can change our methods. We can change our partners, all of which are great ways of helping us learn in times of crisis. Um, the, the, the tension blindness that gets us, that gets us into trouble, is exactly what the gorilla experiment says. You know, it's when you think you know the whole world and you're busily counting that world and you don't notice there's a gorilla in the corner. I think one of the things that's wonderful about the era we're living in now is we have capacities for um, learning constantly. I mean, the informal learning we all do now, as a matter of course, it really has only been at our disposal since about, uh, I like to say April 22nd, 1993 was the day. That was the day the Mosaic 1.0 browser was relicensed so it could be made available to the general public. And from then on, we had this ability to learn, not from experts, but from anybody. I mean, you know, I. If I hurt my elbow, I don't call my doctor. I go to IHurtMyElbow.com and find out what Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Mary, and Sue, and Janie all have to say about their hurt elbows, and I learn from that. We now know from the American Medical Association that 75% of doctors who originally said the biggest problem was people self-diagnosing online, now 75% of doctors say they leave an entree for their patients to say, what they think is wrong with them because they find out actually the patients are co-learners in this job of diagnosing a condition. I think that's a great metaphor for education too. At any stage of life, early childhood or very old age, we're able to, be, to rethink of ourselves not as recipients of some kind of passive knowledge but as co-learners in this quite remarkable enterprise of global co-learning. What are some things that you think about some examples from either your teaching or the professors that you coach in your programs that we're facilitating learning, unlearning, and relearning in our teaching? Well, um, well thank you. One, that's a great question. Um, uh, one of the things I like to do uh, is I have my students write a class constitution. Um, I usually put up a constitution that have either, has either been written by previous students or famous constitutions like the U.S. preamble to the U.S. Constitution, or um, I sometimes use the Mozilla Manifesto or other manifestos from um, educational organizations. I then leave the room with the instructions that as a group, and I usually put this in a Google Doc or some other collaborative document, I, I leave the room with the instructions that when I'm gone, they think together about what they think are the proper standards for conducting a class together. I say, you are a, a miniature society in this class. How do you want to conduct yourself? What is your constitution? How do you constitute yourself? Why that's unlearning is because normally the last thing you do when you come into a classroom 
and sometimes you never do it at all, is think about the conditions of service in that classroom. You know, you just assume that's a given. You know who the teacher is, you know the students, you know what the syllabus is. If you follow the syllabus and do all your homework, you'll get a good grade. Um, I'm actually saying, no, 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 what happens if you take responsibility for your learning? Online, you have to, right? You have to decide whether something is credible or not credible. If somebody says your elbow hurts because you're eating too many jelly beans, uh, that's not credible learning. If they say you have bursitis and maybe you need to adjust the position of your keyboard, that might be credible. How do you learn those things? How do you learn judgment? If you're only taking information from your teachers in formal education, you're never going to learn the judgment you need to make constant calls about credibility when you're online 24-7 as, we all, as most of us now are. So I really think that the ability to make decisions, to work collaboratively, to create a project and carry it through to implementation, to take something from critical thinking to really creative implementation and contribution to the public and the world, a give back of your education to the world that's helping to support you during your, your educational period, your time of education. All of those are things that we have to think about and thinking about them makes us think about what we're not thinking about, what gorilla is in the room in normal education. What things are we being spoon-fed that aren't being spoon-fed to us in the world? And how can we change those conditions? So I would say creating a class constitution is the single most important thing um, I do in my, in my own classes to foster on learning and to um, make students responsible for their own learning in the classroom and with a skill set that then transfers to their the rest of their lives. When I have done things in the past that would be more in the realm of student-centered learning, for the most part, it is met with welcome arms. But I will say that there certainly are the occasional students who meet that with anger. Do you ever find that with the level of students you work at or by the time they get to graduate often, and beyond? Often, and, I say, and I say, if we didn't find that, we should hang up our our, you know, our, our, our credentials as teachers because our students feel that way because they've been well taught to feel that way for, for 12 years. In other words, if they passively came into a class and said, oh, now we're going to unlearn and do all of that, it, that would mean they, didn't, they hadn't learned very well the lessons of the first 12 years of their education. So the brilliance of unlearning, and that's not my term, it's the futurist Alvin Toffler's term. The brilliance of unlearning is it makes you think about things it's the gorilla again. It makes you think about things that you think you know completely, that you know well, and to think about why am I shortchanging myself with something that I actually am pretty good at? You know, if you're a bad student or a rebellious student, it's easy to then try something new. If you're a great student, you're giving up a lot uh, for the world we live in. That's one reason why so many older people are grumpy about the internet. Hey, we were doing great before, and now this comes along and it knocks the wind out of our sails. We're not doing. We're not experts anymore. We're not doing as great as we once were. That's not fair. And I think our students feel the same. So one of the things I often do is ask them if they think their habits of learning in the past prepare them for their world outside of um, education, and I often make experiments where they <laughs> basically I make experiments where they have to fail. Mm. So, for example, I will um, uh, ask them to, uh, I, tr I do a lot of tricks in my classes. Um, I will do things like ask them to sign up um, for a collaborative document like a, a website or a WordPress or a Google Doc, 
And of course, to do so, they have to sign the terms of agreement. And they often do that in about two minutes. So then I'll say, okay, you've all agreed to something. Now we're going to take a pop, pop quiz on the terms of agreement you all signed. Well, they all fail. And I say, wait, 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 this is a constant digital literacy and you failed the first pop quiz and you're telling me you know everything? Well, of course, what I'm telling them is we all have become accustomed to signing those, you know, check here to agree, you agree to these terms. When none of us reads, we know that from the research, nobody reads those 40-page terms of agreement. But what is wrong with a world where we all are so compliant that we're signing away our rights to something that's as important as our data, our privacy, uh, you know, uh, the right of other people to know by keystroke by keystroke what our preferences are and then dictate other choices to us? Those are some huge human pri privacy. My goodness, we're giving up huge human rights unconsciously. So after my students fail the test, and they fail it completely, they don't get anything right on those, on those tests about the terms of agreements they've just signed up. Once they have, I say, okay, if you were going to redesign things and terms of agreement so you didn't fail, how would you redesign them? And then we'll do things like write our own terms of agreement. That's a class constitution. So now we go right back to my first assignment of writing a class constitution. So, I mean, I think resistance to unlearning is a well honed skill in attention blindness. It's when, a lifelong honed skill in attention blindness. If, if I only count the number of gorillas, everything is, I mean, not the, the number of basketball passes, the way I'm told, if I get a perfect answer on the basketball talks, tosses, the way I've been asked, everything is okay. Well, we know it's not. There's a gorilla in the room. <laughs> but it's, we have to be exposed to that before we even see the gorilla. And I have huge empathy for people who think they're doing perfectly and then suddenly are confronted with the gorilla. And that's a pretty shocking and scary world um, to think about. And sadly, we all find gorillas in our lives, but usually they come through tragedy. They usually come through the loss of a loved one through um, the end of love, you know, you think a relationship's great and suddenly you're getting a Dear John letter, through a failure, through not being able to get a job, um, you know, through really traumatic, through culture shock, um, you know, very, very, through illness, a terrible illness. We've all had those moments where there's a before and after in your life when the world looks different. The world was not different. What changed was your ability to see um, a world that you didn't have to see when you were privileged not to, when you thought the world only had basketball tosses in it. It wasn't that the gorilla didn't exist. It was that you didn't see it. And usually it's tragedy that makes us see the gorilla. What I try to do in my classes is in a very careful, nurturing, controlled, prepared-for environment, help my students to see there are gorillas. But by seeing the gorillas, you're not in a worse situation you are well armed and in a better situation to cope with the gorillas of the world. You spoke earlier about the fears and concerns around multitasking. I'd like to revisit that a little bit. Tell us about the concerns that used to exist around the calculator, around what it was like to listen to the radio in the car. What are some of those old right. myths? That My favorite is, is the debates that went on on the level of state legislators and the Senate itself in the 1930s when Motorola and wanted to put a car radio in a radio. People thought there would be, you know, mayhem, bodies lying all over the road um, with car accidents because there was no way you could multitask. The word didn't exist back then. 
but they would have said your attention was divided instead of concentrating on the road your attention uh, concentrating on the radio well we now know that in fact the radio helps save lives because one of the biggest problems in driving is not paying attention to not just paying attention to the radio but falling asleep at the wheel so the radio actually was a great device for helping especially in night driving and long distance night driving and getting past the mesmerizing quality of the road at night. Um, I think in our common world, what we mean by multitasking is we can't do all these tasks. Um, the brain doesn't know how to monotask. The main brain is constantly multitasking. We just don't know it is. It's again like the gorilla and that's what attention blindness is. Um, I'm speaking with you on the phone. I also happen to be looking out the window. Um, my door is closed, but if my door weren't closed, there'd probably be people coming by and none of that would seem like multitasking until it was too much. If an airplane suddenly was presenting itself or Godzilla or King Kong was suddenly presenting itself out my window, you better believe I'd be paying, paying attention to that. And I would then lose the train of thought of this conversation. I would feel like, oh my goodness, I can't handle that multitasking. So all multitasking means is you're overloaded. You can't do all the different tasks that you are being asked to do at a different moment. So again, in moments when we're multitasking, I say, take a deep breath, realize that this is your brain telling you you can't handle the situation and think about what you need to do to handle it. Is it that you need to do fewer tasks? Is it that you need to um, shut out some of the distractions in your life? You know, if something out my window is distracting me from my computer screen. The problem isn't my computer screen, it's the thing outside my window. Maybe I need to shut my blinds. Is it that I need some better tools? Um, is it I, that I need some partners to help me with a complicated task that I'm not able to do alone? I'm confused or, ta or, or distracted. We know that about after about six minutes, the mind starts to wander even from most very, very concentrated tasks. There's only a few tasks, they're often called flow tasks, and I'm going to butcher the name of the brilliant um, psychologist who talks about flows. Uh, Shishman Pali is how I'm going to say it, and I know <laughs> I'm, that's it. I'm just feeling so better, much better about myself that I can't get it, but <laughs> we, <laughs> <laughs> we will put it, we will tell people how it's spelled, because yes. I cannot get it all. He says there's only about four true flow tests that allow you to keep on totally concentrated past the six minutes and you're suddenly looking out the window, Mark. And um, one of them is brain surgery. I'm really glad my brain surgeon <laughs> doesn't have their mind wandering. Mm. Another one he thinks of is playing chess. Another one he thinks is dancing to loud rhythmic music. He always says rock music. I'm not sure if he means actually rock music or any loud rhythmic music. Um, and video game playing. And those are the kinds of multi-sensory, totally involved tasks that we tend not to be distracted from. Other things, reading a book, my goodness, reading a book, people go off the page in two or three minutes. We, even when we think we're totally absorbed, um, we go off the, off the page. There's so many psychological experiments that show that we think we're concentrating when in fact we're not. And of course, a lot of educators, and, and there are times when this is a good approach. Let's put the cell phones away. Let's put the computers. Let's be fully present for each other. But I think, though, that it can't be like that all the time or we're missing opportunities. And that's one of the things you bring out in, in your work. But tell us about the, the unitasking attempt that Howard Rheingold has with his digital journalism course every oh, year. Yes, that's my, one of my favorite things. Howard begins his classes by saying, Turn off, uh, close your cell phones, close your laptops, Close your eyes. 
And then he has his students sit there, not just undistracted by cell phones and undistracted by um, computer screens, but undistracted by the world around them. And he has them close their eyes and think really deeply and carefully about what they're experiencing with their eyes closed in this room where they're suddenly given the task of concentrating. And then when he opens their eyes, he has people tell what they noticed. Nobody notices the same thing. In a room, even without any distractions, even with their eyes closed, people, someone notices the air conditioning. Somebody else notices somebody speaking outside. Somebody else notices a car horn. Someone notices the breathing of the person next to them. Someone notices that it's warm on one side and cold on the other side of their body. Someone notices that when they close their eyes, they see little sparks in, in their eyelids. Somebody else says, I see green in, their eye, in my eyelids. And as he goes around the room, people start remembering more things they experienced. Now, that's they were distracted by the world, not by the cell phones, not by the laptops, by the world. And that's everyday life. That's the world we live in. It's a world of constant, complicated sensory perceptions that we're not paying attention to. The gorilla experiment reminds us there's always something we're missing. And so um, whenever I teach a class, we do something called Think, Pair, Share, a little experiment with, that we do with the very sophisticated technology of machine-made paper and machine-made pencils. <laughs> uh, I pass out index cards, and I always have people at some point in the class do a Think, Pair, Share exercise that goes, and this is one I would do about attention. Okay, we've been talking for the last half an hour about attention. Write down three things we've missed and that we haven't talked about in the last half hour. And I have students write them down silently by themselves, then they turn to somebody else in the room, and I have them for 90 seconds each take turns reading out loud. First one person reads the three things they think we missed. The other person reads the three things they think they, they missed. And then I have them negotiate and tell us as a, to um, prepare as a class to share the single most important thing we've missed. What that does is it gives everybody in the class a chance to hear their own voice. It allows the introvert and the extrovert a chance to speak with the same velocity. It allows them to share ideas, and it also, in that experiment, allows them to hear dozens of things in a classroom that we were missing, even when we thought we were staying completely on topic. That's a metaphor for higher education. Following the syllabus, covering the content, giving, having make sure that we have coverage in everything we teach, making sure we meet each classroom. It's a myth. It's, well, there's always something we're missing. And often what we're missing is the single most important content um, of the class. So um, being aware that there's always something missing and we need the right tools, the right methods, and, my, my, and the right partners, even to have a chance at seeing some of what we're missing, to me, is the most important experiment um, and lesson of attention blindness for higher education. This is the part in the show when we get to recommendations, and I'm going to actually shift mine over to you, and I'm going to introduce a couple things and then ask you to share because you're you're really the expert and not me. But there are two things I don't want us to end this episode with you without mentioning. One are the 21st century competencies, and I will have a link to many of the articles that, that you've written as well as one on Educause on uh, social media literacy and, and this is episode 28, so this will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 28. So I'd, I'd love if you would share about this resource and the discussion happening around 21st century competencies. And then I would love if you would share a bit about Haystack and for anyone who may not know what that organization is and what resources are available to educators there. 
Well, what I love about the 21st century competencies, um, ideas, they change all the time because our world changes. If you go back and look at 21st century competencies, even three years ago, data literacy was not particularly high on the list. Now I think that there have been so many data breaches and Target has given away our social security numbers. Last week, Sony was broken into and very private information of people, you know, their, their actors, their agents, their producers was, you know, made public out, lar- out large. I think data literacy um, is um, very high on the list. And I think what's important is reading, writing, and arithmetic are still hugely important. We also have to read, write, and um, uh, do basic um, mathematical and data literacy in a whole new context. So that's that's one thing. Haystack is an organization I co-founded in 2002. It now has about 14,000 network members. It's dedicated to the catchphrases changing the way we teach and learn. Uh, Haystack is an acronym. It's H-A-S-T-A-C dot org, and it stands for Humanities, Arts, Science, Technology, Alliance, and Collaboratory. Collaboratory is the National Science Foundation's term for virtual um, collaborations and virtual experimentations across institutions. And it's, there's no content, stable content on Haystack. Any network, when you join, as long as you follow the network rules, which are basically respect and civility for others and an attention to all the different ways, formally and informally, that we can teach and learn as human beings, you can contribute anything and anybody can respond to you. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, a few years ago, a student who was a first-year college student published a blog that was seen by over a million people. Um, it's a self-created network. It is the co- it's huge content. Uh, we've been told we have some of the most complicated, uh, voluminous, and trafficked content of any open source website on the World Wide Web. Um, yeah, for education on the World Wide Web, and um, you know it's all user generated. It's what people are curious and interested in, and then finding other partners to be part of it. Um, I've just started a job at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York um, after 25 years um, at Duke University. And we've started something called the Futures Initiative, which is dedicated to the twin goals of equity and innovation. Too often, innovation is seen as somehow only for the corporate world or elite institutions. Actually, if you have to struggle in this world, you you have to learn to be an innovator. So um, this is really dedicated to putting back together again the idea of equity with innovation. And there's a group for the Futures Initiative on Haystack, and we invite anyone to join. It also is an open member group, and um, you can learn along with us about how uh, a world that has more social justice, equality, and civility in it is also a world that can be fantastically innovative on all, all levels. As we come to a close now, Kathy, I wonder if you might just share one more recommendation to people that are listening to this podcast. These are people that have a passion about becoming more effective at facilitating learning. Um, I love the books of my friend and former co-teacher, Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational and the Upside of Irrationality, for empirical experiments that teach us all the ways we don't know each, know each other. I think they're very, very um, useful. Um, in that way. I think Howard Rheingold's NetSmart is a fantastically interesting book. Uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow uh, is a very, very interesting book. And then uh, for an ethnography of how young people really do think about social media in the world, Dana Boyd's beautiful book, It's Complicated, is really a great primer on how young people are thinking and learning today. 
Um, and it's complicated. There's no one answer. The cliches are just, just plain wrong. But um, that, to me, it's a nice little um, companion group of books to not only understand technology and higher education and learning today, but to really understand the deep ways of thinking and the intersections between those deep ways that we think as human beings, the deep and incredibly flawed ways we all think as human beings and the way the digital age either exacerbates or can improve those ways. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for squeezing us into your busy, busy schedule today. This is going to air at the toward the end of December. And what a great time to get all these great reading recommendations so we can spend a little bit of our perhaps time off <laughs> digesting some of these great resources. And thank you so much for the inspiration that you provide to all of us and also the challenges that you just want to have us all be being better at what we do. I saw the other day on Twitter, you had gone to some type of an event and you said, it's really not as much this myopic view on higher education, but just for you maximizing human potential. And you do such a wonderful job of that. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. I I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you. Thanks once again to Dr. Kathy Davidson for joining us on today's episode. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, please go over to teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. I always love getting ideas and inspiration and just hearing your feedback on how you're enjoying the show. And speaking of enjoying the show, it really helps others discover this podcast. If you are open to giving it a review on iTunes or on Stitcher or whatever tool it is you use to listen to it. And as always, I recommend you subscribe to our weekly newsletter. If you haven't already, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. That'll get you a weekly article on teaching and also the notes from each of these podcasts with all the great links. And in this one, we got those great book recommendations and tools from Kathy. So you want to be checking those out at teachinginhighered.com slash 28. 